Thank you for joining the conversation today. I'm Randy Yu, Assistant Director of Collection Development and Curator of Political, Cultural, and Social Movement Collections at Emory University's Stuart A. Rose Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library. And you're listening to the new podcast series, Rose Library Presents, Atlanta Intersections. Atlanta Intersections explores how lives and places are bound together in this city we call home. Today I'm talking with artist, author, and designer Noe Martinez and Common Good Atlanta academic director and Atlanta music legend Bill Taft. Common Good Atlanta is a local nonprofit organization that provides incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people with broad democratic access to higher education so they can develop a better understanding of themselves and the societal forces at work around them. In 2016, the Rose Library received a remarkable collection from Common Good Atlanta. The men in the program at Phillips State Prison in Buford, Georgia, including Noe Martinez, decided to donate their academic essays and artist books from their classes to Emory. The Rose Library is proud to be the home of this unique collection. So join us today as we talk about learning, reading, writing, and creating while incarcerated. Noe and Bill, thank you very much for joining me today. How are y'all doing? Doing great, Randy. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks, Randy. It's uh, it's it's uh, a, a new experience for me, so you know, I greatly appreciate that. So, Noe, before we uh, get into specific projects you worked on and created, I thought I would start by asking you if you remember how you heard about the Common Good Atlanta course. Oh, man, that's, that's actually a long story, but... Um, so I had, I had gotten into some trouble while I was still incarcerated, and um, it was directly linked to the the job detail that I had at the time. Um, I went into isolation for a while, and when I got back out, they wanted to put me back to work right away. I had kind of made up my mind while I was in isolation that like I didn't want to be the person that I used to be, so I was going to try and try and find some way to, to get into, you know, uh, a higher education of some sort. Um, there weren't many options available, but um, I think the, the particular staff member that I was going through at the time thought that I was just kind of using that as an excuse to not go back to work, that I just wanted to sit in the, in the dorm and play cards or watch TV or something. Um, so he kind of, he, he enrolled me in the program with the with the intent of just kind of making it as difficult as possible for me so that I would quit and I would give up and I would just go back to work like a good little inmate. Um, but man, from the day that I stepped into that classroom, I, I was hooked. I was hooked. It was terrifying, you know, but I loved every minute of it. That's interesting because I was going to ask you, do you remember your first class session? But it sounds it sounds like you do. So oh, yeah, absolutely. Classes at the time were being held in the education building at Phillips State Prison. Um, at the, the very last room in the corridor was different than all the other rooms in the building because the at the time there was kind of shoddy carpeting on the floor. Uh, the walls were painted a different color than most of the, the other rooms in the building. Uh, some of the lights didn't work, so there was kind of like a dim effect. So it was just a completely different atmosphere. You walked in and the students that were already there, were just, it, everything was like really mellow and laid back and compared to the dorm that I was living in at the time, uh, where it was just nonstop chaos all the time. That was about 14 years, 15 years since the last time I was in a classroom. And I'm jumping into the middle of uh, uh, a Dickens uh, book that we were reading. And I was I was a week behind everybody. And it was, it was my first day. So uh, Professor Higginbotham kind of walked up to me. He's like, here's the book. You can, you can go ahead and just try to catch up. I looked at this thing. And it, the thing was about, you know, Three, three to five inches thick, and and she said they're already halfway through it. And I'm thinking, oh, man, the last thing I read was a comic book. You know what do you what do you mean catch up? So it, that that part was intimidating. I knew that there was going to be a report that needed to be written at the end of it, and I just again I hadn't written since you know since school since since being in high school. So yeah, it was kind of a it was yeah a daunting task, but um, I was set that like I just I didn't you know I didn't want to be the person that I used to be, and 
I didn't want to go back to, uh, you know, just kind of being a knucklehead all the time. So, you know, in the military, we had a we had a saying, you either you get stronger, you get smart. And I was tired of trying to prove to everybody that I was stronger, meaner and better than everybody else. I was like, yeah, it's not for me anymore, man. I got to try to be smart. So, Bill, these are college level classes. Are they structured and college credit classes? Are they structured like college courses? As Noe already mentioned, there's a heavy reading load. That that seems familiar. Um, is it class discussion? And then it, do they write academic essays? How are the actual courses structured? Well, each course is really a unique reflection of the individual instructor, but the basic model is very much similar to an undergraduate seminar style class. Uh, the instructor uh, brings in the, the texts, uh, the students read the work, and together the learning community um, talks about the, the work. It's very much the Socratic method uh, at work in the classroom. Uh, students do a lot of writing because I think the more we all write, uh, the sharper we become as readers, too. And the more we read, the better we become as writers. And at the end of each class, there's usually a final essay of some kind. So, Noe, do you remember the first essay you wrote? Oh, God, it was horrible. It was horrible. We were just talking about this uh, not that long ago. I, I took a... I took some blank paper that I found in the dorm, started at the top left-hand corner, and just filled the page with with words. No breaks, no punctuation, no no nothing. It was just a sheet of words, and it wasn't just one page. It was like it was double-sided, and like just I turned in like three pages like that. And Ellen Ellen Stockstill, bless her heart, she took it and she read it. She she. You know, made little comments on the paper wherever she could squeeze in, you know, um, uh, space for, for notes and stuff. Yeah, paragraphs uh, did not exist. Sentences did not exist. It was one continuous sheet of uh, word vomit. Bill, I know um, writing is important to you. When y'all envisioned the common good Atlanta, um, did you envision it as a reading and writing program and then expanded it from there? Or did you envision it as kind of a much larger um, project? Well, we started really as a humanities program, really specifically a literature-based program. And Sarah started the program in 2009 with a world literature class. And so naturally there was a lot of writing involved with that. But I came in around 20, 2010 to teach creative nonfiction writing and memoir writing. And so together, Sarah and I and the students, I think, hit a pretty good rhythm in which we did a lot of reading and we then did a lot of writing. And it was a good activity that, that really brought us all together. And I think we're, we were very good, at, and I hope we're still very good, at creating a place where you can get together and struggle with writing, complain about it, but gain proficiency at it and improve your ability uh, at it. Because it is, I think that it is important to realize it's it's okay to, to be made crazy by trying to write. But if you keep at it, you'll get better at it. Yeah. And I thought of the classroom as a maker space, uh, a studio space for artists. Uh, I thought of words on the page as a kind of paint uh, the students applied uh, and the creative energy just seemed so powerful. The, the next logical step was to take the essays from a class and revise them and turn them into something uh, more finished, more suitable for publication. Uh, I thought as a community, we needed a mountaintop to climb, a distant point on the horizon to strive towards. Uh, and we learned about the pen prison writing contest. Uh, uh, so the students in a class I taught in 2011, uh, they created, uh, they finished creative nonfiction essays, personal essays, mini memoirs, and uh, they had the option to revise those essays and send them to the pen prison writing contest. So I think the whole class did that. They sent their essays uh, to the pen prison writing contest and. Uh, we then waited to receive the announcement of our victory uh, 
but the victory never came. We didn't win the contest. <laughs> so instead of getting mad, we decided to get even by creating our own publishing companies, creating our own books. We sought to um, take advantage of the DIY model and yeah. control the means of production. Uh, just like any band in the 80s or 90s making a mixtape, uh, we worked together to produce our own books. Yeah. Uh, and each book would be a reflection of the group's individual philosophy and uh, talent and abilities. So we took the first set of essays from the creative nonfiction class and we turned those into, I think, three books. We had three groups. Each group uh, had a mission. And that was to come up with a name for their publishing company, yeah. a cover design for their book, an introduction to the book explaining why they were making it and what they hoped uh, to achieve uh, with their work. Uh, they needed a table of contents, a collection of author biographies at the end. And that proved to be a very powerful process. We did that in May. Uh, and the groups really engage the work totally uh, differently because they were now producing a finished piece. And just little things like the order of the essays became a source of great debate uh, with different groups. And some of the groups, you, I think in a positive way, became slightly more competitive with the other groups. And there yeah. would be a secret way to organize yeah. the, the, the essays, which I think is very true. I mean, they're controlling the, the, the representation of the work. So we did that in 2011, 2012, 2013. And in 2014, uh, Ellen Stock still had wrapped up her class, The Philosophy of Time. And I thought, this is just, it's, it's not just a course. It's a, it's a live performance, kinetic sculpture, art happening thing uh, that is perfect for book form. So the students took their best essays from her class. And then that May, we met throughout the month to produce a new set of books based on those essays. And in that May, uh, we, I broke the class up into groups, but our new student, Noe, wasn't able to be in one of the groups because he lived in a, in a different dorm. He had a different dorm assignments. And part of the strategy with group work was men who lived in the same dorm would work on the same book. But Noe, Noe was a man apart, isolated, <laughs> alone. And Noe, what, what happened? Did you, did, you, did you just fall over and collapse? Or? No. Uh, someone, someone gave me the option to uh, opt out of the, the, the project because uh, I didn't have any partners and it seemed like a big workload. But um, we had so many examples that were brought in of, of different ways that you could have fun with all of the contents that we needed to put into into the book and me being a you know self-taught artist i was just like no no i'm i'm, I'm doing this we're, we're gonna do this even if it's just me myself and i we're all three of us we're getting down and we're doing this that was an interesting process because i had uh i'd taken so much inspiration from from a lot of the the classes that we that we that we had um, the history of the book the history of binding um, you know how paper is made how, how you know why the covers of books exist you know um, so I, I actually wound up making my own paper making my own cardboard making my own paints brushes tools everything everything that I could. Uh, I, I kind of um, used prison ingenuity to to, to make, um, and then I, I pieced together some, you know, Frankenstein piece of uh, artwork. And at, when it was all said and done, it was very like I felt it was very punk rockish. You know, it was like you know, blood, sweat, and tears went into this thing. Like literally, blood, sweat, and tears went into this thing. So what the the end project that you produced was is called the Rise of the Morlocks. Rise right? of the Morlocks, right? Yeah, right. and so describe to us. I mean, it's a collection of essays, but uh, what what is Rise of the Morlocks? Uh, Rise of the Morlocks is my my interpretation of uh, our struggle as a um, imprisoned community. 
we often see ourselves, uh, and this this is referring to the the uh, the time machine, but uh, the H.G. Wells time machine uh, uh, novella. Um, we often see ourselves as the Morlocks rather than the Eloys, and I just felt that you know we kind of needed a, a reminder. And for me, I'm a very visual person, so like if I could produce something that was so ugly, so crude and disgusting. And it was powerful enough to to have someone who is supposed to be represented by this take note and say that's that's not me that's not us and like at that's the point where you realize you aren't what you thought that you were so move up level up be better than you know what you think yourself to be well it's about the size of a a, a vinyl album you know it's it's large this big square thing. Um, the paper, and so almost everything is handmade down to the stitching. And like, actually the binding was kind of like really, really Frankenstein-ish. It just kind of, uh, just kind of put that last little bit of oomph into it. Uh, but the cover, the cover works is actually a, a, a one piece fold out. So if you, you know, uh, put the spine in the center and you open up both covers, it's, uh, it's a, it's a prison scene. Um, but there's a huge gray wall on it and, uh, it's, it's slathered in graffiti. And to me, that's, that's very important because, you know, graffiti in itself is a thing that's not supposed to be there. Much like how I felt we should think of ourselves, even though that we are in a place that we don't want to be, that doesn't mean that we have to be there, you know? So education was one of the ways that, that I try to keep my mind uh, as free as I could while I was behind that big wall. There's so much in that one piece that like, it's, it's hard to pinpoint, but that's what the covers look like. Uh, Morlocks is done in, in, in vibrant red. And then I just, I used a lot of floor wax to just kind of give it that like super shine pop. A lot of inspiration from, from horror films from uh, the eighties and nineties. There's a lot of artwork inside of it too. Lots of numerology, a little, little tidbits just kind of hidden everywhere in that, in that piece. And they were all they were all mentioned in the book. Like if you if you read every word that's in that book, you'll find every little hidden message, every little you know just little Easter egg that's in there. Um, and besides doing it because it's kind of a fun thing to do, I, I did it also because you know it, it represented me. Your artwork always represents you in some way, shape, or form. And I always felt that like you know people that you know, spend a little bit of time with me, kind of get that feeling that like, oh, I thought I knew you, but like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that that one little bit about you. I, I had no idea that you were into this or that you were into that. And actually Bill and I had a moment like that once uh, discussing uh, music in class. <laughs> what do you know about suicidal tendencies? What do you know about <laughs> suicidal tendencies? So that was a, that was, that was a fun moment. Well, and so you said you created all of it. Did you just go to the prison craft closet and get out some magic markers and some <laughs> colored paper and stuff like that? No. How, how, how did you how did you create this? <laughs> so uh, this this project um, actually took place during an institutional lockdown. Um, so it was it was for the weather actually. I believe uh, um, this was during what do they call it, Bill? Snowmageddon. Snowmageddon, that's right. Snowmageddon. So the the institution was actually uh, placed on lockdown. So what that meant is that I was trapped in my cell for, I believe, three days with uh, nobody to keep me company but the little goblins in my head and my bunkmate, who at the time uh, was just a very curious person. And, and when I told him, like, hey, look, man, I'm sorry, but I'm going to turn our room into uh, my laboratory. And he was just so curious. You know, he just kind of wanted to watch just – all the mad science happened. No, I had I had to I had to fabricate everything from the tools to the all the expendable you know material uh, that's used in creating art. So I made my own glue. I made my own paper. I made my own inks. My own brushes. My my own uh, uh, little drill bits to try and you know uh, wallow out the holes in the in in the cardboard. Uh, so that I could stitch things together. I think actually the thread is the only thing that I did not make. Even trying to make some of the tools required having other tools already on hand. So there was a lot of lot of prison ingenuity, a lot of prison ingenuity that that came in and uh, was helpful for that.
how, how do you make paper, right? How do, how do uh, well, we we learned um, in one of Bill's classes. Essentially, you uh, you crudely described the paper making process of just you know just kind of taking or not paper but cardboard, but just taking old pages that were you know a flawed in one way or another, you know, shred them up, crowning them up, uh, mixing them in with with water and some kind of binding agent, uh, and then it gets pressed. So I, I replicated that. <laughs> I replicated that in, in my prison cell. Uh, I used everything from from hair gel to the window epoxy that I could scrape out, um, Kool Aid, I mean, anything that would get sticky with uh, with enough moisture and, and heat that was put to it. You have this class where you've done these readings, you've create academic essays, but now in a way you're creating an art project. Um, what was it like to move from that? academic experience to creating an art project to house these these ideas these writings and all that that you and the men had like a, a lot of the guys when they produce their works in class you know they're really proud of them and <clears throat> to uh to a flaw almost you know some some guys are really proud of their work and refuse to take any kind of uh um, critique to it, you know, even if it is in, you know, in, in, in a sense that, you know, someone else is trying to help them become a better producer of, of material. Um, so n- knowing that, I just kind of wanted to make something that didn't like steal that shine, but just something that was, I, I wanted to build this grotesque kind of a pedestal to just kind of display, you know, the real work and the real work is the written work. I'm just some, you know, I'm just a, I'm just a goofball that knows how to do stuff is, is what it is. I, you know, I taught myself how to create art from, from a very young age. And that meant, you know, sometimes things weren't always as pretty as they should have been, but I didn't, for me, it wasn't, it was never going to be a competition. And, and I don't say that arrogantly, but like, I know that like the other guys were trying to pull as much of the resources that they had available to them to try to kind of like outdo the other groups. And to me, I was just like, for me, it's not a competition. Like I'm just, I'm going to do what I do and it's going to be so vastly different from the stuff that you guys are trying to put together. That it's like, it's just going to stand out and whether it stands out because it's good or because it's bad, like, Hey, it's, it stood out. Another interesting aspect to rise of the Morlocks is um, the compiler's note, the making of the book. So yeah. there's the essays, there's the artwork, but then you kind of chart the journey of this within the book. Um, how did, how did that idea to include the, like the parts of the, the guts, if you will, the, the parts of the process in the book. That came about from, again, different, uh, different classes, like standalone classes that we had with, with Bill and, um, you know, every, everybody was just kind of, I don't want to say copy, but they were following structure, you know, and like at, at, you know, at our core, me and Bill, like punk rock is just like, is such a driving force, you know? So it's like, I don't know, I'm not going to follow you, you know? No, of course I'm not going to do the same thing. I'm going to make sure that like my, my stuff is, uh, is different. I think the, uh, the, the colophon that I created was, uh, representative of, uh, not just, uh, like something that was completely me, but also that was completely genuine to the, the, the housing of the essays. You know, um, if you, if you want to learn more about a person, um, you can, you know, their writing, their writing is a gateway in, in, into who they really are. So you can, you can, you can read past the fluff and you can, you can see what's really important to a person. Uh, and I feel like that's the same way with artwork and, you know, people can look at, the stuff that I put together and like, man, what the hell kind of crazy stuff is that? But like, at the same time, like, just think of the history that, you know, that is me that, that helped produce this thing. And I, I felt like it was only right that I catalog, you know, catalog that and uh, included it in the, in the book itself. Very Frankensteinish, you know, you're reading a book about, something getting pieced together, but it's more than something getting pieced together. It's, it's that journey. So Bill, what's it like to make these assignments and then, um, see the men bring back these projects? Um, is, is it a, uh, like a fun creative journey to see, to see that process at work? 
Yeah, I think it's very similar to what I experience as a musician and what I think other artists experience when they work on a show. But also as teachers, I think we tap into that creative force too. Uh, So it's a great thrill to watch all the pieces of this puzzle come together. Um, And just being able to work with Noe is a great privilege because he's such a strong collaborator, a shrewd listener, but he's also, you know, ready to bring his spirit into the mix too. Uh, because everything he made in that book is, you can actually connect it too to what we studied. I think of that main master in the history of the book. Uh, we spent a lot of time. We spent a lot of time reading about incunables, books made in the early days of the printing press. And then books made uh, earlier in, or later in the 16th century. And what we learned was that the book, as we know it today, it was not born. It did not spring forth from Gutenberg's printing press. It had to be invented. It grew out of a process. And just as the men uh, struggled with writing, just as I struggled with writing, so book designers struggled with the process of coming up with this book structure that we all know so well today. Uh, initially, books didn't exist. You went to the printer and he just gave you the printed leaves and then you took the leaves to a bindery. Uh, we learned that around the 15th century, front matter was invented. And front matter is a fancy way of talking about the cover, the frontispiece, table of contents, uh, acknowledgments, pagination, page numbers had to be invented. It was not that, oh, hey, we're going to put some page numbers on this. It didn't, it it was something people realized they needed to add to the process so the reading experience uh, was more efficient. We learned that initially book buyers, would they buy their printed stack of paper, pages, from the press and then go to the bindery, but to protect that stack of printed pages they needed a cover of some kind so they took that's where cardboard came from the the early printers would just take the leaves known as cancels they'd fold them up glue them together and make cardboard so we talked about this in class and then a week or two later Noe comes back with all this history brought to life I mean, yeah. he, he, he really, he wrote about time travel, I think, or explored time. He <laughs> traveled through time and recreated this historical process in the book he made. Uh, it, that to me was, uh, I mean, I wasn't there when Beethoven wrote the Fifth Symphony, but I'll bet he felt pretty good <laughs> at the end of it. And that's what I, I, when I saw Noe's book, I thought, I'm getting to hear Beethoven's Fifth Symphony for the first time, or the, the premiere. I mean, it just was this, this, this ability to bring all the pieces together in a very uh, real way, uh, just like an artist. Whereas, you know, I think a, a graffiti artist, you know, working with that, the found materials. Uh, it was also just a, a powerful experience because I think the, the classroom became a lot like the, the gatherings at the Idrum Art Gallery, where we would gather and just there would often be book art on display uh, at the Idramark Gallery for the old Nexus Press. So suddenly the the room became this makerspace where we could explore history and each person could bring their creative spirit to the process. Noe, what was it like to have that kind of outlet while you're incarcerated? Um, you know, I, I've heard a lot of the guys refer to the, the class and the opportunity to just kind of be creative as life-changing but for me it was really life-saving um i had kind of gotten into a world that like i didn't it's not not that i did belong because like you know it was a world that i created for myself but like deep down inside that 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 inner child never died that inner punk never died they don't just go away you know just your your current personality at the time is just you know the stronger personality and when while i was incarcerated like you know there there are those quiet moments where everything seems like it's it's caving in on you and you just kind of feel like a little kid well 
in my instance, you know, my little kid was screaming, at me, write out something, you know, scribble on the wall, let him know that you're still here. So that's, it's kind of what it was, you know, it was an, an opportunity to write on the walls and, you know, I, I've never stopped doing it. Um, and, you know, though I feel guilty, you know, that I, that I stepped away for, for a short period of time from, you know, just kind of continuing to exercise that, that creativeness, um, I think I had a you know a little mini comeback that just kind of kicked my butt in the gear and and really kept myself from from losing myself in the in the world that you know prison life kind of turns people into. So um, the book in I guess I can't remember exactly where it is in the book, but I, it may be the very end. It says, "If I've learned anything, it's words are powerful." Yeah. So what? What did did that statement in the book kind of reflect for you? I came from a from a world where I knew that that uh, secondary education just wasn't in my future. Like saving money for college, that's that's not stuff for us, man. You know, I come from a working class family, so to be able to prove to myself not only that um, that I was that I was able to, you know fulfill the assignments but but the shine doing it that to to bring a different perspective uh to people who had been doing it for a while was was very eye-opening Word, words are power you you don't just put stuff out there you don't just put greatness out there you know you got to work at it um and it's i think like any other talent you know you just kind of got to you have to keep working it. You got to keep working it. And, uh, eventually, you know, one day someone's going to remember you, you know, down the line and, you know, you get praise like, like Bill just gave me. And it's like, Oh, you know, it means a lot. It means a lot. You, one other of your kind of artworks um, and, and written works is in the collection, The Threads That Bind Us. Again, it's a collection of essays, but right. you, um, again, created an art project to kind of house house this with these essays within. Right. So this one was a little different only because I, I didn't I didn't have to do this project by by myself uh, at the time that this project was was brought up. I had moved from the the dorm that I was originally in, and I was living in a building that had um, a few other of the students uh, in it. We we had several options of what we wanted to do, and uh, you know the the question kept coming up it was like, all right, so how how do we connect all these things? Like, what is what is that one thing that connects us all? And someone just happened to spout the phrase like what is that thread that binds us and i was like all right cool i got it you know <laughs> i know what it is <laughs> what is it and it's like i, I don't know it's literal thread binding. <laughs> like, what, what do you mean like well i mean we're all bound here together right like we're all incarcerated right we're we're all wearing the same thing right and like yeah that's what it is that's what binds us because you know outside of this place you know we don't know each other. We, you know, we don't, we wouldn't necessarily have like known each other, or hung out, you know, or whatever. And we just kind of took that idea and rolled with it. And, um, you know, I can't leave nothing alone. Like people will bring me an idea and, and I, I have to put my little, you know, little twist of horror or, or, or something in it. So the, the book was originally supposed to be in the shape of a sarcophagus. Um, but <laughs> some of my other teammates were were happy to just kind of, you know, let let me off the leash. Like, just just do it. <laughs> just just go with it, man. Just whatever. And like you know, they would they would put in their two cents as as to how things should have gotten done and and what we should do. Uh, and at the end of it, it was like, guys, I'm I can't build a sarcophagus, man. Like it's just it's it's too late. It's too labor intensive for what you guys are trying to help me. You know, and um. So they're like, well, just just do your best. Or like, I'm building a box and I'm putting a mummy in it. Like, what do you mean you're putting a mummy in it? It's like the mummy is the book. You don't get it. It's wrapped. Like we are, we're bound, and it's dead. 
Well, and you also have an essay um, in it uh, about beautiful decay. So I described you at the beginning as an author, but um, oh, yeah. you're also a writer. You're an author and a writer yeah, uh, in, yeah. in the sense of the term. So, yeah. um, so what what is beautiful decay about? So I have uh, I've been writing graffiti since I don't know ninety three ish along there. Um, graffiti is a really big part of the core of who, who I am. Um, and it, beautiful decay is if it's, if it's the poem, I believe it's the poem that's that you're talking about. Um, it's just kind of, uh, you know, just poetic nod to, to that, to just that, you know, um, people have often referred to as to graffiti as, uh, the signs of um, uh, societal, you know, crumbling. Like this is this is when you can sell your gurning into a bad neighborhood. You see graffiti everywhere. It's so it's it's ugly. But for me, you know, growing up in Chicago, like graffiti was this beautiful thing, you know, colorful thing on the wall that would, uh, you know, really contrast the the predominantly gray. <laughs> surroundings that my life was so to me it wasn't uh it wasn't so so bad you know well and you know one of the things that's that you say uh and kind of an essay about it is you about graffiti you mentioned that um it's people who are worried the rest of the world had forgotten them um and it's a way of yeah. Well, and you also have this great line. It's uh, graffiti is an unapologetic and unruly art form to help validate their existence. Yeah, that was that was super important to me in prison. Um, when you when you come into the the prison system, you're stripped of your identity. You're you're issued a number, or or you're given you know acknowledgement only by your last name or whatever you know silly nickname you you wind up getting in prison. But essentially, the person that you are in the, the real you is lost um, and you have to, you know, kind of create this facade of a, of a thing that you, you know, kind of want other people to see you as um, for me, that, that, that was just so dehumanizing. Like um, my whole life has been a struggle fighting against that. You know, I'm, I'm not, you know, a statistic. I'm, I'm not just a tick mark on, you know, someone's survey. I'm, you know, I'm more than that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a person and statistics and numbers and GDC numbers and last names, they don't, they don't vandalize. People vandalize. People write on the walls. I'm a person. I'm still here. And even though it's, you know, an alias that's up on the wall, you got to think to yourself, well, who, who is it that was here? Who did this? You know, like, what's that say? All of a sudden you're, you're asking questions and the answer is always going to be a person. A human being, someone with a history, someone with a past, someone who, for whatever reason, found it appropriate to take a marker, a pencil, a rock, a piece of ash, something, and scribble on the walls to just let the whole world know, yo, I'm still here. I'm still here. You had asked earlier, you know, about Kamagit Atlanta and, and how you know, other guys have uh, see it as, as life-changing and like the program, the program is so special. It's so powerful, not just because it's uh, bringing education to people who might not have had an opportunity to take advantage of it, but because um, it, it really is a life altering experience. If you, if you really work the program, uh, if you if you believe in it, like it, it is a life changing experience, and like I've done all these wonderful things that I've never thought that I could ever accomplish, and it's all because I had people like Bill and Sarah believe in me and guide me and help me, and teach me. Um, you know, they're they're great role models, great role models, and you know, without them, you know, I'd still just be a punk kid, you know, drawn all over the walls. So, you know. I can't say anything but thanks. Bill, is this how Common Good Atlanta envisioned things to go when when y'all started doing this? Yeah, I think really what we're talking about in in, in very important detail with Noe's artwork really grew out of a 
classroom experience and culture that Sarah Higginbotham started long ago. She brought in uh, an academic conversation. She never lectured. She turned that classroom into a community space where each person's dignity was brought to the fore. And that series of conversations has just kept going and going and going. Uh, we're, I'm not really sure. We have, I guess, teachers and students, but really we're all equals sitting around that table talking, arguing, disagreeing constructively, uh, and producing work of, uh, in a number of genres and forms. We have art books, artist books. Uh, we have essays, poetry. Um, and this, I think, is just part of the, the college curriculum ideal. Um, and it's something that I think we were continuing, and I hope we can do it more and more with men and women as they're released from the prison system. I think we've got a community of alumni who can keep making work and producing work and, um, you know, carrying on that, that creative force and educating others. Well, and this, you know, there's been a lot of questions over the past five years or so about the role of humanities. What does this program say about the role of humanities in, in studying books and in writing and art? Well, I think the, you know, the world's powerful and elite have always made sure their children had access to the humanities. Uh, it's always been a means by which uh, the ruling elite has been able to pass on cultural capital to uh, the next generation. Uh, you know, I think it's very important for us as a society to bring these tools, this, this tool known as the humanities, to all. And if they can't make it to the college campus, it's our responsibility to bring the college campus to them. Uh, and that's something Common Good Atlanta is determined to do. Uh, we will bring that college classroom into the prison classroom at Phillips State, Whitworth Women's Facility, Burris. Uh, we've got a new classroom uh, for formerly incarcerated people. Uh, in, at, the class meets at 101 Marietta Street. But as a society, we need informed citizens. Uh, it is a I suppose, our obligation as citizens to make change happen, not to sit around complaining about the change that doesn't happen, but to bring the change into the world. And the humanities give us tools we need to make that change happen. And the argument we may make as citizens, it might be graffiti, it might be artwork, it might be a film, it might be a policy paper of some kind. I, it's a big problem. I think pushing the culture forward. Uh, I think all we can do is work together. Uh, so if each of us takes on a, a little bit of the big problem, we're more likely to take that big problem and, and demolish it. And I think the humanities <laughs> help with that. Once a punk, always a punk. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Noe, I think you've spoken like through your projects and your writing kind of around the idea of the importance of the humanities for the uh, incarcerated, but can you speak a little bit more kind of specifically about what you think the role of the humanities is within prison? I, I feel that the role of humanities in prison is, is uh, it's a door that, you know, allows us to explore things that we didn't uh, necessarily believe that we were really ever capable of, of handling before. You know, um, there's, it's just, you know, to use myself as an example, like I, I never, ever thought that I would have anything to do with Shakespeare. And in, was it 2015, I believe I, I put together a paper where uh, I attempted to answer, you know, 400 year old questions that everybody just kind of said that, you know, we have these unsolvable questions about Shakespeare and in particular, Hamlet, and, and it's like, really? Weird, let me give you a little something. And like, bam, like, and it's, you know, Bill was talking about how the elite pass along, you know, this 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 culture and this narrative, but like, you know, if, if it's isolated only to, to the haves, you know, and every now and then maybe someone else can get in there, you know, it maybe it doesn't grow as stale, but, you know, 
let a couple of have nots get in there and you know they they can bring perspective to everything so noe what what are you up to now what are you working on trying to uh just kind of get reacquainted with society uh so the world has changed a lot in the last 10 years and um it's an it's an interesting ordeal but artistically uh i've been doing a couple of um I've done a couple of skateboards. I'm working on a uh, documentary film right now. Um, I'm setting up a uh, world record attempt. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's I got there's a lot of irons in the fire, and uh, eventually one of them is gonna pop and singe something, maybe catch the house on fire or something. But hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully we have fun doing it. So the the documentary and the world record attempt are kind of a combo deal. So the documentary is essentially uh, the journey um, from being released from prison and, and dealing with the, the biggest cliche of, uh, you know, you, you can't make up lost time. You can't make up for lost time. So it's, it's essentially me and my close group of friends um, just kind of trying to make up for lost time figuratively and literally because we are trying to build a uh, modified Mustang to set a world record attempt for Route 66. Um, so we're going to try to rip from Chicago to L.A. County um, as quickly as we can without getting sent back to prison. And uh, hopefully it makes for a good uh, for a good film. Um, and it's it, it's. Uh, it's it's different. It's different because uh, I don't know if anyone's kind of recorded the uh, the struggles that people uh, returning to society have to go through for the simplest things. Like you know, I've been out since September. We're now in February, uh, and I'm still fighting to get my driver's license back. Bill, what what is Common Good Atlanta up to? We're uh, what's Common Good Atlanta is has grown a lot. Um, we are now offering accredited classes, uh, Whitworth Women's Facility, uh, Burris Correctional Facility, Phillips State Prison, our accrediting partner is Georgia State University. Uh, we also teach at Metro Reentry Facility, and we have a classroom uh, for formerly incarcerated people, the downtown classroom. And we're going to keep doing uh what we started doing uh, back in 2009 uh, when Sarah Higginbotham taught her first class. And that's just keep the conversation going. We want to get the conversation involving more people uh, because Noe made an important point that we need more voices talking about Shakespeare. We need more voices talking about United States history. We need more voices talking about art history. I think the last, if, if the humanities is just a conversation uh, involving a bunch of, of kids in a college classroom on a college campus, that's going to be a very dull conversation. I assure you, I was once one of those college kids. I was a moron. We need more people <laughs> uh, joining this conversation. It's not the more voices we have, the more engaging that conversation is going to be. So I think Common Good Atlanta is just going to continue to uh, break down barriers, build bridges, uh, and give people uh, the tools they need to get their voices into the mix. That's what we're going to do. One great big house party mixtape, humanities-driven <laughs> audio kinetic performance endurance piece sculpture. <laughs> With dirigibles. With dirigible. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, we need more mosh pit energy in the humanities. And that's something yeah. that, you know, Noe brought and brings to the conversation. We need these graffiti must be included in any discussion, I think, about you know, writing. Uh, it's yeah. absurd to exclude that. Um, so that's what we're going to do. More, more building more bridges. Tearing down, you know, breaking down more barriers, bringing more people together. So, Noe, um, what does it mean to the men to have these materials at 
the Rose Library where other people can come in and see them and uh, see see your see your work, see the group's work. It's a it's more than validation, you know. Um, it it means more to us than that that someone can come and, and you know acknowledge that we existed, but. Speaking for for myself, like the fact that it's at a university is impressive, but just like you know the it being in a library, you know, like <laughs> something that I did is in a library, and it's not on a bathroom wall. <laughs> it's uh, it's 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 something that I'm really really proud of. You know, um, I, I can't really explain the 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 pride and joy, um, and it's it's something that's really hard to to translate. Um, to, to like my family, you know, because, you know, I, I would tell them about the classes all the time. And, and then I would tell them like, Hey, I got stuff that's at a library. They're having an event. You should go check it out. You know, such and such. And it's like, they don't, they, they don't really get it. They don't know why it's that important to me. And, uh, I don't, I don't know if anybody ever will, like, unless you live it, you know, if you go through events in your life where you feel like, you know, your, your opinion doesn't matter. Your voice is muted. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have people that are listening to the point where it's, it's archived for, not just for, for anyone to come see, but for, for the future generations to, to discover. Um, it validates your experience. It validates your, your, your existence, uh, your struggle and everything that you, you put into um, the the piece that actually made it, you know. So it's it's it means a lot. It means a lot. Atlanta Intersections is produced by Randy Gu and Nick Twelmlo. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor and the legendary band with no name featuring Jimmy Deemer and James Joyce created and performed our theme music. We're grateful for the support of our colleagues in the Rose Library, especially Low Leader Row, community outreach archivist. Jennifer Gunter King, Director of the Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, Dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to the Tot Still Death Crew, Henry Aaron, the 13th Floor Elevators, Joe Strummer, Etta James, and Crass for inspiration. Please join us next month for Episode 6 of Atlanta Intersections. For more information about the Rose Library and our other podcast series, please visit us on the web at rose.library.emory.edu and follow the Rose Library on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find the Rose Library's podcast on all your favorite podcast feeds.